celebrating women today, the women who got us here and the women who will take us to a better place if we only let them. This is Labor and Love, and I'm the bee. Pretty woman, I couldn't help but see, pretty woman, that you look lovely as can be. Now, are you lonely just like me? Pretty woman, stop a while. Pretty woman, talk a while. Pretty woman, give your smile to me.
and dying, they got a hold This is the nature created for the terror zone Let's turn the page, shaman burn the stage Clear the way for the prophets of rage Kill the kick your life Morning, mutineers. This is the B, and the show is Labor and Love Radio. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. Somewhere in the sun. 
man in this lonely crowd Man who says he's not to blame This is The Bee, and this is the Labor and Love radio show where the labor meets the road by, for, and about working people. Labor opinion, commentary, history, interesting interviews, it's all coming at you every Saturday from 10 to 12 on Mutiny Radio here at 2781 21st Street. Mutiny Radio, which is uh, fast becoming a cultural center for the entire area, the entire Mission District. Well, what do we got on our show today, you might ask? We're going to keep counting down the favorite songs on Labor and Love. We'll do the second 15 today. We've got uh, we've got commentary from Radio Labor and from the Union Edge. We've got Mr. Block. Are there so many Mr. Blocks out there? We've got the labor and love, labor beat. How much did the GOP pay to get new, to destroy net neutrality? The answer might surprise you, but it probably won't. We've got an interview, a KPFA interview uh, with uh, Robin Henderson, who just recently finished... Uh, an autobiography of her grandmother, a woman named Matilda Rabinowitz, who was a wobbly organizer in the early part of the 20th century. All about her life. As I said, we got Radio Labor and we got Mr. Block. The Florida Stealth Offensive Against Unions. What's the next step in the 
ruling class's drive to destroy unions. This might be it. We've got this day in labor history. Uh, so, join us. Here's where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, well, let's get right to it. We had some music. We started out with... The last one we had was I Shall Be Released. Nina Simone sings Dylan. Prophets of Rage preceded that. Prophets of Rage, the uh, hip-hop supergroup formed by members of Rage Against the Machine and Public Enemy. Prophets of Rage. And before that, we had a tribute to the women in our lives, the great Al Green singing Pretty Women, Pretty Women. we're going to do today is start counting songs down. Now this song that I'm going to play right now has gotten five plays. So that puts it at number 32. We're going to count down to number 15 today. So people are worried about the labor movement. People are worried about this or that little action. Let's give them something to talk about.
plays. Them crazy bald heads. Them crazy. Them crazy. We're gonna chase those crazy bald heads out of town.
Labor and Love Radio here. That set was... The last one was Nutbush City Limits with Tina Turner about a typical American town. White town. And if you do anything, you get thrown in jail. Then Bob Marley's Crazy Bald Heads. We're going to knock them crazy bald heads out of town. Should have done it when you had the chance, huh? (laughs) Native peoples had that moment uh, when the European money people landed. They had that moment where they could have pushed them back into the sea. And then something to talk about. Well, if there's going to be a labor movement, let's give them something to talk about. Let's blow away the whole rotten structure that feeds money to those who don't need it and takes it away from those who will die without it. These Republican policies, these government policies, kill people. So, go out, like on the 20th, when we go out to the Women's March, we go out because we want to save people from the violence of poverty. As working people, we join together in unions to do that, and it's time to do it right now. I want to play something... Uh, from the Union Edge. This is how Donald Trump, for example, tries to take advantage of working people's achievements, working people's work. Here we go. This is on Union Edge. Welcome back. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Laborers Talk Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in. We enjoy your company, and we appreciate all the wonderful things you're doing for the community. Uh, this program is sponsored in part by the American Federation of Government Employees and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and we appreciate their support very much. Joining me today from Politico, we've got Lauren Gardner. Lauren, welcome back to Union Edge. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We appreciate you being with us today. Uh, President Trump uh, is touting uh, his efforts in um, making the airlines of our country safe, uh, uh, outstanding safety record. Nobody died um, last year. Do we know how many people traveled by air last year? Uh, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but I'd say probably in the millions. Lots of people, absolutely. And quite honestly, traditionally in this country, airline safety has been, um, well, it's safer to to fly to where you're going than it is to drive, yeah? That's right, yeah. Uh, airline safety has greatly improved in this country and around the world in the last uh, several years. And uh, is airline safety before President Trump took office had already been very safe in the U.S. Uh, the last crash on U.S. soil by a domestic airliner was in 2009. Uh, that was the Colgan Air crash near Buffalo, New York. And then the last um, passenger flight that crashed at all that was actually a foreign carrier, that was in uh, July 2013. That was in San Francisco. Let me ask you a question. Uh, what what has uh, what has been the, the, the primer for that? What is, what's uh, 
what's made airline traffic uh, so safe? Well, uh, airlines and and governments got together. Uh, at this point, it's been over the last decade plus. Um, they they combined kind of joined forces to address the issues with aviation safety and uh, work to create a kind of best practices safety management systems approach to um, to increasing safety among uh, among air travel. So it was really a, a way for all of the different companies that have a, a stake in the game, all the airlines, to get together and share, you know, what they've found that is working best for them, what they've tried that maybe didn't work as well. Um, so it was really a collaborative approach, and um, that's been credited with uh, greatly increasing the safety of air travel uh, in the United States. Uh, between the industry and the Department of Transportation, the FAA, and others, uh, are there other initiatives that are being brought forward to make it uh, even safer? I know that there's been some questions about air traffic control systems. Uh, they're quite antiquated. Um, they need to be improved. Is uh, that being talked about? Is the president promised to update the systems? Well, that's been a uh, big debate on Capitol Hill for the last couple of years, and that is something that the president has expressed interest in doing. Uh, Congressman Bill Schuster, he's the uh, chairman of the Transportation Committee in the House, and he has had this proposal to take uh, air traffic control operations away from the FAA and spin them off into a, uh, a nonprofit corporation. And uh, he, as part of his argument for this plan, he's argued that this would uh, make air travel inherently safer by removing the air traffic control operations from the regulator who's charged with making sure that they're safe. Um, and that's an argument that many others who support this idea have seized upon as well. Right. Um, detractors um, of this idea have basically argued the opposite. Well, it's interesting because uh, Bill Schuster just announced that he's leaving Congress. Um, and, and quite frankly, um, there's a reason why the FAA and the air traffic control system is maintained and monitored by uh, seasoned trained professionals that, that work for the federal government that have uh, high levels of training and, and uh, dedication. Um, they, they do the job better than the private sector, and that's been shown time and time again. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we went to uh, a federalized uh, screening service uh, for anybody boarding aircraft um, because the private sector once again couldn't handle it um, so long and short of this is um, has the president pointed to any specific direct actions that he has taken to make airline travel safer or um, is he uh, pointing to something that uh, he may do in the future uh, the White House, in response to questions about the president's tweet, said that, well, they, they pointed to the president's embrace of this air traffic control spinoff plan. But as we were just talking about, that hasn't moved through Congress yet. It hasn't even reached the House floor, and the Senate has shown little interest in taking that up. Um, but they also cited uh, the work of DHS to uh, introduce enhanced security measures across airports uh, to ensure safer travel. And, of course, that's conducted— security and safety. Um, security and safety go hand in hand, but there there is there are nuances and differences between the two. Yeah, I, I, I concur wholeheartedly, and there has not been any major incidents uh, on board U.S. flagged uh, domestic aircraft 
since uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Administration has taken over as a federal employee. Uh, so this is a wonderful thing. Um, and besides the president saying that he's interested in seeing the FAA privatized, um, has there been any other initiatives that he's uh, moved towards? Uh, there haven't been any major new initiatives undertaken by FAA. Uh, they're still working to implement some regulations that Congress has required over the last few years of authorizations. Uh, one of them that they're still working on is creating this pilot records database that makes it easier for airlines to see um, whether a, prospect, a pilot that they might hire has any kind of DUI record or, or any information like that. Um, so that's something that they are still working on, but uh, there, there haven't been any major new uh, commercial safety aviation regulations. And Congress hasn't done anything new on aviation policy since mid-2016. That was the last time that they reauthorized the FAA and added new, uh, new policy language to the law that keeps FAA up and running. There you go. Uh, anything else we should know about this one? Um, just that uh, domestic air travel has been safe for many years here in the U.S., and uh, um, it, it, looks, it looks like... Everyone hopes that that continues, certainly, uh, yeah. it, well into the future. But uh, this <laughs> yeah. has been a, a, a record that's been longstanding for the last several years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of good people doing a lot of good work out there. Um, and we should support them and not stir the pot. But that's my opinion and my thoughts. I appreciate you being with us today. How do we find out more about you and what you do for Politico? You can find me on Twitter at Gardner underscore LM, and you can find some of my coverage on Politico.com slash transportation. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. You know, folks, I, I got to tell you, um, like I said, there are a lot of good people working in the airline industry, both in the public sector and the private sector. Um, I, for one, am a firm believer that, um, well, safety and security is an inherently governmental function and should be handled as such. Um, get out of their way, let them do their job, and stop playing games with them, their paycheck, so on and so forth, for political gain. But that's another story. So if you want to fly safely, make sure that you've got the right people in the process. Meantime, I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. The Union Edge there, uh, Lauren Gardner from Politico talking about the how safe and secure the airlines have been under uh, federal control and federal and government workers as opposed to the private sector, which in some cases can't really handle the, the responsibility. I guess the message of that is keep it federalized. Air traffic... All right, I want to talk about a young woman named Erica Garner. 27-year-old Erica Garner, who died just a couple days, I believe, before New Year's. Just read it. This is a Washington Post editorial. 
letter to the editor. Opinion. Erica Garner died two days before the new year. She was 27 years old. Garner became an activist for civil rights after the 2014 death of her father, Eric Garner, a black Staten Islander who died at the hands of a white police officer. Stopped for selling loose cigarettes, Garner went into cardiac arrest after being put into an illegal chokehold. The event was captured on videotape. Editorial comment. It's just terrible. Three police trying to bring down this big, heavy set black guy, and the guy is screaming, I can't breathe. Those words have become a national rallying cry, but her work came at a cost. I'm struggling right now with the stress and everything, she said days before her own death. This thing beats you down. System beats you down to where you can't win. The system can kill, and racism can as well. It killed Erica Garner's father and contributed to her own too early demise. She had become a, a voice, one of the leading voices of Black Lives Matter, and her particular cause in this case is mental health services for those who need them the most. On Christmas Eve, she suffered a massive heart attack that led to extreme brain damage, likely related to the traumatic effects of pain and loss that disproportionately affect black women. Within hours of her death, accusations of bias flew in the opposite direction. Why? Because of a tweet from her account. Out of respect to Erica, please do not request comment if the journalist is not black. It was an unexpectedly provocative request. Alt-right commentators cried reverse racism. And even nonpartisan journalists found reasons to question its logic. Was Reggie Harris, Garner's political advisor and director of her Twitter account, after she fell into a coma, suggesting that white journalists shouldn't cover black stories? In large part, wariness is rooted in a balance of power tilted in the government's direction. Garner's power was never of this type. She called attention to the asymmetries that would allow a police officer to kill a man in a crowd of witnesses and yet remain unindicted by a jury and employed by his department. In fact, police officer Daniel Pantaleo's pay has been increased. In the face of death, even the most hard-boiled reporter should extend some deference to the grieving. And 
and for a brief moment Garner's team sought to seize a narrow slice of power gained through tragedy to advance minority representation. To promote the voices of those who, like Garner, might not get a chance to speak. The outrage response shows how unwelcome such a shift was. If we don't hold power all the time, Harris told me, but we tried to exercise it when we could. If she had asked that two weeks ago, no one would have cared. But in that moment, there was a new realization of where the power lay. Erica Garner, dead at 27. That was a Washington Post uh, editorial. Where would you come down on that? Do the uh, survivors of a of a person who is militantly political have the right to limit uh, some reporters, some journalists, to some journalists? What long question? I think I, in this case, the writer tends to agree and says that they're exerting, taking a chance to exert some control. Okay, so be it. Radio Labor's up next, and then we'll get on with some music. This is the World Radio Labor Report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on December 8th, 2017. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, how businesses can respect human rights. The right-wing tax plan to increase income inequality in the United States. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. Every year, the United Nations brings together business, government, and union leaders to evaluate progress on the respect for human rights in company activities. The goal is to move the UN's guiding principles on business from paper to practice. At a recent forum held to discuss the guiding principles, Christy Hoffman told the delegates that some progress towards the respect for human rights has been made, but there is much more to be done. Ms. Hoffman is the Deputy General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni represents some 20 million workers employed in the skills and services sectors. I began my trade union career nearly 40 years ago as a shop steward in a large factory. And as a shop steward, my job was to represent workers with their complaints, which we called then and still do, grievances. I handled thousands of these. On the grievance form, there are two lines. The first one asks for the violation. And the second one, more important, far more important, remedy requested. Well, the job of the union was always then and still today to obtain a remedy to the, main, to the many problems workers confront in the world. It is not enough to identify the violations of our human rights. There must also be a remedy. But awareness of the guiding principles, voluntary steps, and soft law have not been enough. 
there is a big gap between talk and action, between policy and progress. Remedy is all too rare. We still have 11% of the world's children at work, and progress has stalled for those between 5 and 11. There are more people in modern slavery than ever before, and, the, and respect for the fundamental enabling right of freedom of association has actually declined over the past five years, as measured by Vigeo Iris. This comes as no surprise to me and my colleagues, because this is the message we hear from unions and workers every day. So what can we do? We know from decades of workplace audits that voluntary steps do not get the job done. Already, our benchmark programs show that almost all companies are well below a passing score. This session is intended as a call to action, and delegates, more action is required in order to deliver on the promise of the guiding principles. To businesses, we say, recognize unions at your places of work and throughout your supply chain. Engage in collective bargaining in order to address inequality, in order to provide a fair and decent conditions to your employees. You and your suppliers should pay a living wage at a minimum and offer safe workplaces. You should also sign binding agreements with global unions, such as the Bangladesh Accord, or global agreements which address freedom of association and other fundamental rights. More than 100 companies have already done so. If you are a global company, you need a global counterpart as part of your due diligence, as part of your commitment to human rights. To governments, yes, legislate, reporting, and transparency, these are good steps, but it is not enough to know about the problem and measure it. There must be legally imposed remedies for violations of human rights, and businesses must assume their responsibility through a binding framework, as they have already done for so many other norms, for example, anti-corruption and anti-discrimination. We ask that you do four things in order to secure respect for human rights by businesses. Pass legislation to mandate due diligence and supply chain transparency. Take legal and administrative steps to allow for access to effective remedy within your borders, including for company operations abroad. Support an ILO supply chain convention to guarantee labor rights across the footprint. And lastly, but not least, support a binding UN treaty on transnational corporations. Now you may say that these are good aspirations but not practical in today's modern economy. And I say, yes, these are aspirational, but they are also attainable. We must be the best we can be. Those of us in this room are among the best informed in the world about business responsibility for human rights. So we should now make it happen. In the United States, labor unions are fighting plans by the ruling right-wing Republican Party to dramatically cut tax rates for corporations. Both the Senate and the House of Representatives have agreed to plans which will cut the official corporate tax rate from 35 to 20 percent, while increasing taxes for the middle class and the poor. Richard Trumka is the president of the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the U.S. It is the great con. Any tax plan that's going to be good for working people should do three basic things. One, corporations, Wall Street, and the rich should pay their fair share. Two, it should create enough revenue that will create jobs 
and invest so that we can invest in infrastructure and education to meet the needs of working people in our communities. And three, it should destroy all incentives to offshore jobs and profits. This tax plan fails miserably on all three of those things. They increased the rate on the people at the bottom from 10 to 12 percent. They decreased the rate for all the people at the top. There simply is no evidence in theory or in fact to support the notion that cutting rates actually increases growth. Let me use Boeing. From 2002 to 2016, Boeing's effective rate was 3%. Now, it doesn't get any better than that. Corporate America has three years of record profits. So it's not a tax code holding them back. This is the great con. They're going to give more to the rich and to corporations, and the people in the middle and the bottom are going to end up paying for it. That is bad for the country, bad for the economy, and truly bad for workers. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Stork correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 240 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of a call for unions to do more to fight gender-based violence in their own ranks, the news that one of our solidarity actions has had an effect and that a Libyan trade unionist is free to continue her work, and new restrictions on the right to strike in Australia that are amongst the worst in the world. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Dockers at a huge new port in Sri Lanka were locked out. Airline pilots in Mexico held a partial strike to support their bargaining committee's position. Dockers used cars and bicycles to blockade an Australian port. Garment workers in Cambodia left work to protest their lack of legally required time off work. Mexican workers continued to blockade a mine in an effort to force their employer to recognize the independent union of their choice. Sugar workers in Iran launched a work stoppage and protest rallies after four months of work with no pay. And university lecturers in Cameroon ended their strike when their employer agreed to return to the bargaining table. Our top working women stories included coverage of a decision by Ethiopian unions to prioritize women's workplace rights, the progress of the Zambian union campaign against gender-based violence, a conference on unions in the lives of women workers in Southeast Asia, and a comparison of the lives lived by Bangladeshi women garment workers today and those of women in the unionized garment industry of the United States. The Health and Safety Newswire, we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the March on Parliament by South African ambulance workers who were demanding military protection, how much safer American hotel room attendants are when provided with panic alarms, and about the legal action taken by British unions to protect construction industry safety activists from being blacklisted by their employers. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use.
I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Yes, indeed. It is about about global solidarity. There is one way we can move if we really want to overthrow a capitalist system and institute a system that takes care of its people, all its people. It's going to have to be a worldwide movement. It's going to be have to happen in several places around the world. Radio labor. Music now. Let's see, we had Nutbush. Let's see, with eight plays. Here's uh, Joan Baez. Sing one more song and we'll have an intermission. I dreamed I saw I never died, says he. I never died, says he. See you in 20 minutes.
You know these people walking around here talking about the woman on the left of them, all that kind of old carrying on. I don't see why that woman has to leave them. Mine ain't left me yet. But I don't know how soon. Cause I keep that woman in my mind just as fat and healthy as she can be. She will do. You know, because I raise hogs, chickens, and cows, and everything. And she better not act like she's hungry. Not as a cow did. And if she want a choke, I go out there and catch one of them chokes. And she have pork chops all the week. She will. And every time she get hungry, she get evil. You can't blame the girl, cause she's a country girl. Now my baby's a country girl, and she just can't help herself. Yes, my baby's a country girl, and she just can't.
contribution to this generation of music. Great songwriter performers, please make welcome Sean Colvin, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and Roseanne Cash.
estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles, ni palacios, ni quiero que me alfombren las calles al pasar. Tampoco es que yo exija ni tierras, ni riquezas, más que está recibiendo. Tan solo estoy pidiendo sentirme bien amada, que me amen como yo amo, con fuego y con pasión. Ojalá comprendiera que estoy desesperada, buscando quien se entregue. Yo. Mi princesa ni esclava, simplemente mujer Mi dueña de la noche, mi dueña de la noche y del amanecer Mi princesa ni esclava, simplemente mujer said we're honoring our women today and that was uh, Jenny Rivera native of Long Beach California with her hit named Princesa Ni Esclava Simplemente Mujer I'm neither a princess nor I'm not your princess or your slave I'm just a woman before that we had uh a cut from Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary, I guess, as, as a recording artist. Uh, Roseanne Cash and others singing his hit, You Ain't Going Nowhere. Ooh, ride me high. And Otis Spahn. Otis Spahn, the king, as far as I'm concerned, of the blues pianist, the Chicago blues pianist. Or any blues pianist for that. Hungry Country Girl. About why he loves his woman so much. 
And then we had Joan Baez singing Joe Hill. Joan Baez, who kind of understood, I think, that we were all hippies, right? But it was all basically a working class movement. And so she sang that song. Okay, I want to get ready now. Get comfortable. We're going to hear uh, about a, an IWW organizer from the early 20th century, the subject of a biography by her granddaughter, a woman named Robin Henderson. Um, Matilda Rabinowitz. So without further ado, let's play Matilda Rabinowitz. One second, please. Here we go. Matilda Rabinowitz. After became a member of the IWW. A conversation on the life of Matilda Rabinowitz, who was a Jewish immigrant young woman who came to the United States in the first half of the 20th century and would become an important radical organizer. We'll speak to her granddaughter, Robin Legere Henderson, who has just published the memoir of Matilda Rabinowitz. It's called Immigrant Girl radical woman a memoir from the early 20th century the united states in 1900 uh with from russia You're listening to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich, and we now turn to a conversation about the life and times of Matilda Rabinowitz, an immigrant Jewish woman who came to the United States as a child in the early 20th century and who would become a radical organizer in sweatshops and who would also become a prominent member of the Industrial Workers of the World, otherwise known as the Wobblies. For that conversation, I am joined by Matilda Rabinowitz's granddaughter, Robin Legere Henderson, who has edited and illustrated her grandmother's memoir, which is called Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, a memoir from the early 20th century. Uh, Robin Legere Henderson is also a Berkeley-based artist and writer and former director of the Berkeley Art Center. Uh, Robin Legere Henderson, it's my very good pleasure to welcome you to this radio station. Thank you for being here. And it's a great pleasure to be with you, Mitch. My understanding is, well, your grandfather had a, a, a program here? That's right, he did. He had, I think he called it either Memoirs of a Radical or Memoirs of a Rebel. I, I can't remember what the title was, but I actually heard a couple of, of, of his his really? shows when I was a student at Berkeley in uh-huh. the 60s. Uh-huh. And his name was what, Ben Legere? Ben is Legere, so yeah. He had a program here. Yeah, he so, did. So you have long roots here, as, as your grandmother did as well. She she, she, lived, she in lived in Berkeley for a, a yeah. brief time, but a very significant part of her life. Help me. I, I never heard of Matilda Rabinowitz uh, before I got your book, uh, but that's very frequent. I haven't heard a lot of things <laughs> until I get the book. Uh, but, but help me encapsulate more. Uh, 
they do well, ceremonies? Well, not, not an uh, annual, uh, but, sh- but this past year she was uh, inducted into uh, Labor's International Hall of Fame. Under the name Matilda Robbins, because that's the other name that she was that's known right. under. So, so tell me, how does she go from just what a short period of time before this strike, being a worker at a shirtwaist uh, company, right? A, yeah, a garment worker. Yeah, she how was, did she go from there to heading a, a, a labor strike? She for other workers when she joined the this is a good story too this is the little fall strike when she joined the wobblies with my grandfather and they were having an affair um that was a, a bit of a scandal because my grandfather was married with two children and my grandmother and my grandfather um were exponents of free love and um i think that that um, free love movement really benefited men more than it did women. But my grandmother right. was believed in that uh, as, as strongly as Ben did. And, um, it, but it was a problem for her family and for others. And so she went to Boston and got involved in, um, in she, it was her first white collar uh, Employment actually, she started working for a, a commission that was studying labor issues among uh, women workers in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut. And from there, um, as shortly after that, this uh, there there was the uh, the well known Lawrence strike in in Ma- Lawrence, Massachusetts, and my grandfather Ben Leger had been um, involved in that. And then there were strikes that were in the garment industry, in the in the textile industry that were cropping up a lot during right. that time. And one place that, that this occurred was in Little Falls, New York, which is on the Mohawk River on the Erie Canal in upstate New York. It's a small t- city, um, but it had a, a lot of knitting mills. And they, because of some labor laws that had been instituted that cut the work week from 60 hours to 54 hours a week, the, the, um, bosses in their wisdom decided, well, they, the hours are cut, the pay will be cut. And of course, they were, people were already living on bare subsistence anyway. Right. And so there, there was a wildcat strike and Ben was sent first by the IWW. Both my grandmother and Ben were, were, um, members of the Wobblies. Right. Uh, but Ben was sent as an organizer with a co- colleague, Filippo Bocchini, and uh, they were immediately arrested, and s- my grandmother wired the national office in Chicago to see what the um, what was happening, w- who was going to take over the strike, and they sent her. And she writes that she had never been in a strike before. She was 24 years old. It was quite daunting. And just to kind of give you a, a mental image of who she was, she was a tiny little thing. She was 4'10". So, yeah, under, yeah, under five feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and but she was powerful and a woman and a woman and the auto workers were they all male the the auto workers were all male and she says in her memoir that she 
she attracted quite a stir because uh, quite a, a lot of people came to see her just because she was a curiosity. Yeah. And there, the picture that that I have uh, that I that I feel is kind of one of her more iconic images. I took from a newspaper photo from the Detroit Free Press of 1913 of her standing on that soapbox addressing a throng of males that she's just barely above their heads even though she's standing on this big box. And it's also interesting that it's the Wobblies that are helping organize this strike. Oh, the Wobblies would take advantage of any opportunity they had to, to get in there and organize. Yeah. Yeah. Where was the big labor unions? You know, the the real powerful unions originated in the west among lumber workers uh, lumberjacks and uh, and law and um uh miners bill, big bill haywood was a miner right and and uh my grandmother knew him slightly and has some i mean i guess i was just trying to figure out what where were the other unions? Well, I mean, this is kind of the heyday of the Wobblies. It was uh, the but heyday. There were, but, but the Wobblies always opposed capitalism. They did. And sort of, it, it distinguished them from the other labor unions. Yes, and the AFL yeah. was there, but they were really denigrated as a crafts union. And, and the Wobblies were an industrial union and believed in organizing in industry-wide. That's right. And uh, and uh, so they really did not like the AFL. Yeah. Um, and there was the uh, the Women's Trade Union League, huh. WTUL, in Boston that uh, my grandmother was connected to through the Wobblies. So she had these connections with the women's labor movement, too. And she had friends that were active in 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 a, a a more legitimate not so scrappy union as the wobblies were um and and that was the interesting thing i think about her and uh, people like her during that time it, they weren't just union people they were they were intellectuals they were free thinkers they were atheists they were went across and feminists yeah. all kinds of issues so, so what ended up happening in detroit i mean why, why is she now being celebrated today i think it's because she was the first and she was a woman and she, it that it really galvanized um the the workers there and henry ford was in the plant had his um, assembly plant, his Model T assembly plant right next door to the Studebaker factory, which is where the strike was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a, within a year of that strike, um, Ford had voluntarily raised the pay of his workers to prevent a union from forming. And I think that's another reason why um, her efforts there and that strike is considered to be important. It, not just because it was the first, but because it really influenced the whole uh, industry. We are in conversation with Robin Leger Henderson, and she is the editor, the artist uh, of her grandmother's memoir. And her grandmother is Matilda Rabinowitz, who we were in conversation about. And the memoir is called Immigrant Girl a Radical Woman, a memoir from the early 
20th century. For our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you want to hear more about Matilda Rabinowitz, you could you could see uh, Robin Legere Henderson at the San Francisco Public Library, and that's at the main library at the Latino Hispanic Rooms A and B. That is going to be on January 10th, uh, starting at 6.30 p.m. So again, January 10th, uh, you could hear more about Matilda Rabinowitz at the San Francisco Public Library. We'll give those details again uh, as we wrap up. Robin Legere Henderson, um, tell me now what ends up happening with your grandmother and the uh, industrial workers of the world, the, the the Wobblies. She's with them for what, 10 years or six years, is it? Well, she she remained a Wobbly, I think, in, in all spirit her all yeah. her life and, and, and was actually writing for the IWW paper until up to her death. Uh, okay. Um, but as an as a organizer, um, she, uh, I think she found the work extremely difficult. And she doesn't talk about the violence, but in stuff that I've read um, that that talks about some of the same strikes that she was a part of, there was a terrible thing. People were murdered. People were stabbed. People were um, brutally beaten and jailed. And she kind of makes light of her own stint in in jail by saying, you know, it wasn't any worse than any other jail. Um, it, you know, and we, we had a good time. We sang and we, you know, made a nuisance of ourselves as much as we could. And um, she, she really makes light of it. But I suspect that she may have herself encountered some violence and she really did not relish that. You suspect? Well, Yes, I, I I read an account um, that was written after the fact that my grandmother's last foray as an organizer was in um, South in South Carolina, in Greenville, South Carolina, of uh, cotton mills there, and she was all by herself, sent by the IWW to try to organize uh, cotton mill workers, and these were really really poor. Appalachian folks um, who uh, were recently urbanized uh, to work in the mills. They really were rural people and their diets were horrible and they were uneducated. And Matilda was uh, um, self-educated but very uh, well-read and um, well-spoken and um, very foreign-looking. She was small and dark um, and I think it was a rather alien, and she was alone. There was she was by herself, sent to organize these textile mill, these cotton mills, and um, she went. She was there for a time and uh, several weeks, and then she left and went back to New York, and then returned. And altogether, she was there for twenty weeks, and. Uh, she only says that she found it exhausting. But I read an account that was written years later in a document that was published by the Communist Party, who were later in the 30s trying to organize the same workers, um, 
And one of the workers is reporting to the interviewer that the, oh, somebody came down during the war, meaning World War One, uh, from the IWW and tried to organize us. But she was driven out. They threw eggs at her and told her and threatened her and told her never to come back. And it could have only been Matilda. One of two people. Yeah. Right. And there are two wobbly Women, women organizers, organizers yeah. during that period, yeah. yeah. S- but Matilda never mentions it in her memoir. Never mentions it, never, never told mem- you Never told me, never talked much to us about any of this. And I don't think it was because she didn't want us to know about it. I think it was because we probably weren't as interested as we should have been. Yeah. Growing up while she was alive... Did, did you know that she was the radical lefty? I knew it as a sort of a thing, but it wasn't... I didn't understand that it was anything particularly significant. Our whole family was <laughs> was radical. So everybody was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was normal. Yeah. <laughs> it was the air you breathed. <laughs> um, did, did she write more? Did, did Were there things in the memoir that astonished you, that, that you were unaware of? And, and did she ever write about, again... Whether it was with the Wobblies, whoever it is, there's not many women organizers back in the early 20th century. What was her experience like as a woman? That were you able to to, to, to get insight into that? I I guess I had some feeling of it from reading the text, um, definitely because she she it comes up occasionally. But I but I also we talked about it when I was a young. Person. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was always a very outspoken feminist, and I would and sort talk of. To you about and that. we ta- she would talk. She would she would mention something about well, you know, women, blah blah blah, yeah. and I would say things like, "Oh, Nana, women got the vote in 1920," <laughs> you know, as if the whole issue was settled. Yeah. And of course, you know. 10, 15 years later, I was part of a women's consciousness raising group. So. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she did, um, she did, oh, she argued politics with us. I was kind of a, a liberal Democrat as a, as a teenager. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she was a radical. Uh-huh. And so, so your grandmother was way to the left of way you. Way to the left of me. Yeah. I'm, I'm now. I've caught up, yeah. but but at the time, <laughs> you know, I thought Kennedy was great. Yeah. She thought he was awful. She did. <laughs> <laughs> Again, your grandmother, Matilda Rabinowitz, along with her family, and I guess she was 13 years of age when, when they came to the United States from mm-hmm. Ukraine, which was part of the Russian Empire at this time. Did mm-hmm. she ever have any opinions on the uh, Russian Revolution? Oh, yes. Yeah? Oh, yes. Um, Matilda was an anti-Stalinist. Yeah. Um, and she did not like the Communist Party. Um, she felt that the Communist Party in the United States was dominated by the Soviet Union. And she believed she was a Democrat with a small d. And she didn't feel that the Communist Party was democratic. And well, she was against suffrage. Well, she wasn't against it. She just didn't think it was important. Yeah. Um, I think it w- she did vote. Uh, you know, when she was afforded the vote, she she voted. I see. And when she was allowed to own property, she bought property. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't abolish her own property. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, she was a woman of contradictions, as we all are. Yes. And that was one of the things that uh, that was important to me in this book is I did not want to whitewash her or make her s- seem like a uh, a 
a spotless, you know, hero because she was a human being with the same kinds of contradictions that we all have. And I was interested today to hear about Erica Garner and talking about her father and saying that she wanted people who wrote about her father to tell the truth about him. She didn't want him to be presented as a as a person that wasn't human, that he was yeah. a human being. And that's the way I felt about about this this book too is that I wanted people to know who she really was and she's still to me she's still a marvelous character but not a perfect person of course (laughs) and of course Erica Gardner is she she has just passed away so yeah it was very sad 27 years of age Robin Legere Henderson that it was very interesting and, and I thank you greatly for being here and telling us the story of your grandmother Oh, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you, Mitch. Again, Robin Legere uh, Henderson has been our guest. She is the editor and illustrator of a new book, which is the memoir of her grandmother, who we've been in conversation about, her grandmother being Matilda Rabinowitz. And the memoir is called Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, a memoir from the early 20th century. And again, for our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can learn more about Matilda Rabinowitz and here, uh, Robin Legere Henderson at the San Francisco Public Library. That is going to be on January 10th at the main library at the Latino Hispanic Rooms A and B. Uh, so that's just downtown, uh, January 10th at 6.30. Thank you again. Thank you. So there you have it, uh, the life and times of Matilda Rabinowitz and uh, Robin Henderson contributed to our, our project, uh, Labor Cards, a set of 30 uh, cards depicting uh, famous labor leaders with a biography on the reverse side. And Matilda Rabinowitz was one of those featured ones. Check out Labor Cards, care of uh, CFT. Mr. Block. Mr. Block was a comic book um, let's see was a comic book written by Ernest Reby, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Block appeared that day in the Spokane newspaper, industrial worker smoking a cigar and wearing a checkered suit with a top hat. Subsequently, Mr. Block lost the fancy clothes, but often kept the hat ten sizes too small on his forehead. Let's see if we can... Here's Mr. Block. Mr. Block is reading a newspaper that uh, he says, of course, that sign advertisement from last week was a fake, but I will not condemn the whole so-called capitalist press as the IWW does. My last boss told me that the newspapers are all right and that the IOW is all wrong, so it must be so. Here's an ad that looks good to me. One dollar only. I'll try to get the dollar. 
It says, become prosperous. Become a salesman of the National Royal Soap. One dollar for samples will make you independent for life. The success of our salesman is phenomenal. Write us for testimonials. So Mr. Block is looking for a chance to uh, make some money. I am going to invest that money and make a fortune and then we will all have a square meal. And his wife is saying, it took the kid a year to save that. And the kid is crying and he says, he busted my bank and swiped my dollar. Even the cat is saying, hurry up, we need it. Mr. Block's family is short on food, so he's got his samples and he's going upstairs to the sixth floor there's no elevator in this house and I think it is overrun with salesmen I ought to get a big order here but then there's a foot kicking him downstairs I hope you break your neck you soap agents are a pest and Mr. Block is falling down the stairs and his soap is flying all around It's a shame to treat an honest man like this. So Mr. Block is stuck there on the stairs and he says, if the IWW wasn't so god darn radical, perhaps I would join as soon as I get down here, down below. So there's Mr. Block with his big career move to be a to be a uh, soap salesman. Okay. Um, I want to read this one, Florida Stealth Offensive. Florida Republicans are pushing a bill designed to deal the state's unions a death blow. House Bill 25, which was introduced by Longwood State Rep. Scott Placon, would decertify any union in which 50% of the workers don't pay dues, thus preventing them from being able to collectively bargain. Despite the fact that unions negotiate for the benefit of all workers, no employee is forced to pay dues in Florida because it's a right-to-work state. Right-to-work policies are purposely constructed to reduce the resources of organized labor, as many workers realize they can benefit from their union's collective bargaining efforts without giving them any money. In practice, HB 25 largely targets unions that lean left, exempting the few worker organizations that typically back the GOP, firefighter, police, and corrections union. So what they do is they pass a law against unions, but they keep those unions, those unions are not part of the anti-labor law. The same exact move was just attempted by state Republicans. It's an outright attack on labor unions, Democratic Representative Wenge Newton said at the time. 
The right to bargain should be upheld and shouldn't be in, interfered with. HP, HB 25 would disproportionate, disproportionately impact women employees who make up the majority at the unions that would be targeted. This fact was brought up by Representative Kirsten Jacobs. I know you said that was not your intent, she said to Playcon, but when you look at the workers affected by the bill, over 80% are union. Now, if you look at the unions exempted, they are largely made up of men. legislation could end collective bargaining for most teachers in the state. The teachers union is fixated on halting innovation and competition in education, both of which don't work. Innovation means uh, more big dollar, you know, tests and texts. Competition means the race to the bottom as people exempt kids with low test scores and uh, hire people with less and less education and expertise because they're cheap. Anyway, so that's in In These Times. I want to check that out. And the article is called The Florida Stealth Offensive. How about the labor beat? What have we got here on... Uh, well, we've got a, a picture from the Just Commie Things post of two cows grazing in a meadow. And one cow is saying to the other, you can't eat this grass. This land is my private property. Pay me rent or get out. And the other grazing cow says, fuck off, Derek. Okay, we're number one. America leads the way in CEO. Well, America leads the way in CEO worker income gap. This is in these times as well, working in these times. First appeared in Common Dreams. As corporations and wealthy individuals across the United States are slated to benefit from massive tax breaks, thanks to the GOP's latest tax legislation, a Bloomberg analysis. Now, this is Bloomberg. This is business institution. Found that the chief executives of American companies already make 265 times the amount of money an average worker is paid. The largest CEO worker income gap in the world. Double that of their Canadian counterparts and 10 times greater than those in India. While India ranks second on Bloomberg CEO pay to average income ratio, Indian chief executives made about a tenth of their American counterparts' incomes, averaging $1.46 million 
annually. So I ask you, is the work of a CEO worth 265 times that of, of a worker? No way. Without the worker, the CEO is just some guy sitting in an office drinking martinis or whatever. Without the CEO, the company keeps working because the people who do the work know how to do the work and know how to do it well. America, America goes on its mad way. How to jumpstart a weak union when you have an open shop, open shop talk. Fight open shop attacks. Unions are asking workers to commit to keep paying dues. If you're active in your union, leaders may even be asking you to sell membership to your co-workers. What if you're caught in a union that hasn't been doing a good enough job? What if your union doesn't communicate much with members? or is mostly invisible or only reaches out to you and there's a crisis and doesn't fight hard for good contracts or is too cozy with the boss. This is a tough moment, one filled with great possibility. We're on labor notes, how to jumpstart a weak union to fight open shop attacks. So number one is listen. Listen with co-workers who you trust and whose values you share. Brainstorm goals with other people. Build a network. You might say, we think there's enough of us who value this type of union so we can start taking steps to make our union better. Our goal is to make it good enough so that when Janice rolls around, many of our unions will actually, members will actually want to stay. This is where labor education comes in, starting with very young people. Young people need to understand about the labor movement, what it is, what it's based on. Take action. You don't need to wait for permission. Just start talking among yourselves about what the problem is, what solutions you propose, and how you're going to work together to attain them. And then fair warning. Change isn't easy, and some of your co-workers or union leaders may not see the need for this kind of activism. Stay steady, be patient, keep going in the direction of bottom-up, direct action unionism. It's the real solution to the Janus threat. So it's coming. We know how to deal with it. We've already dealt with it, huh? There was times when there were no unions. There was no representation, there was no union shop, and we fought for it and got it. 
All right, let's go out today with Willie Dixon. You know, the blues speak of so many Hi, Solina. And making a kind of a Shout out to Vita, who... Oh, the program. Makes me want to be a better dad all the time. The whole group. Sylvia Nepo and everyone else out there. And when you think about... Remember, stay strong. Various nations of earth. The various religions of the earth. When you don't stand up. The various nationalities, the various you don't people. stand up, they'll say you stood world. up for sitting down. We have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Remember? One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. But it don't Remember, make sense. When we can't make peace. if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, wise men, great men, you're on the menu, guys. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. say labor I mean you this is labor and love radio coming at you from mutiny radio the home of the mutiny comedy festival radio comedy festival but it don't make sense in the first week of March it don't come on down it don't make this has been labor and love fans where when you can't the labor meets the road. Bye bye and have a good week and good work. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. 
They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2pm. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2pm. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. Yes. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. 
They're more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base ten times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Yeah, it goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. 
They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bare exoskeleton Contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com Timstesseract.com So you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. But that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, 6 to 8 on Joke Workshop with 4-minute sets and 4-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, 7 to 9 with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THCT. You want more open mics? Fridays, 6 to 8. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. Work and take a seat at Asiento. 